You know, I'm, I'm, I'm struck a bit as I was sitting there this morning and I was watching um, Eddie, Pastor Eddie. I'll have to get used to that one for a moment. Um, just just watching, watching how all this unfolded. Meeting him for the first time as he was a student on campus, same campus that my daughter was on. I remember the first time that I met him. And then Pastor Jermaine, and that's when I'm still, those two words together, I'm still, <laughs> still, still working with that. And marrying this couple, how many years ago now? Twelve. Twelve, I thought it was about 12 years ago. It's amazing. And Blythe, if you don't know, she, she and Mary were practically sisters growing up. We lived, they lived in the same neighborhood. And then here all of these folks are together, laboring together. But on behalf of the gospel and the kingdom here in Northern Virginia. And it's, I, I, I just, I had a, I, I got a little verklempt. I just, I just had a bit of a moment right there this morning. But Pastor Jermaine in his opening remarks today was, was talking about Jesus being one of the great advocates of prayer that we have. And, you know, it's interesting when you hear someone else say something that, that you already know, but you hear it differently. But you know, in that, same, in that same chapter of Romans, it says that we have a second advocate of prayer. It's the Holy Spirit. It says that the Holy Spirit is now living on the inside of us and he's praying continually in accordance with the will of God. Do you realize that two of the three persons of God are always praying for you? Two-thirds of God are always praying for you. Okay, you didn't get that, but that's all right. I, I, I need, I, I guess we all need that much prayer. All right. And I'm thinking Jesus telling Peter, I'm about to jack you up. In a way that's going to, you're going to walk with this limp for the rest of your life. But I won't let you know I've prayed for you. Because you see, before we go through anything at all, God is not only with us and praying for us in the moment and in, in, in the fact of the circumstance, he's already made intercession for any and everything that comes into our lives. Turn in your Bible, if you wish, to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 4. 1 Peter 4. How many of you read your Bible and wish there were parts of it that simply were not there? I mean, can we just get real? Now, we're not saying it's not inspired. We're not saying God didn't place it there. We're not saying it's not there to instruct us, inform us, and all of these things. But there are just some parts of it, JC. I just wish, could, you just, could it just not be there? 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 12 happens to be one of those passages. Dear friends, you're always being set up right there. <laughs> Do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering. As though something strange were happening to you. Now let's just stop there for a minute. How many of you, when you get jammed up, you immediately think, moi? Really? 
everything, God, everything I know about you, and I sing and I pray. I'm so, what? He says, but he's, Peter's saying, don't be surprised. And I don't know about you, but I still get surprised. Do you ever get surprised sometimes at how mean folk can be? How stupid people can be? Do you ever still get surprised at how ugly the devil is? And how intent he is on messing with your life and your children? Don't be surprised. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ that you may be overjoyed when his, come on, glory is revealed. There's something about the glory of God that only gets revealed not only coming out of suffering, but in the midst of it. Skip down a few verses and it says, so then those who suffer, this will mess you up, according to God's will. Whoa, 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 whoa. What translation are you using, Pastor Jim? Doesn't matter. They all are going to mess you up. So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. One of the greatest myths errors and I'm going to go ahead and get a little stronger here and say heresies a little cranky about this that has ever been foisted on the contemporary church has to do that has to do with that of the believer and hardship. Particularly the form of the gospel that we hear in the Western church tends to be that you can somehow order and ordain your life in such a way that you are never going to have difficulty. Well, I don't know what your mama told you, but I'm here to tell you it's a lie. Because if you were never going to, why would God send the third person of himself and name him a comforter? You ever thought about that for a moment? We talk about the names of God, Jehovah Rapha, Jehovah Jireh. How about comforter? That should be some prelude, some hint that there's going to be a moment we're going to need God to reveal himself to us in hardship as a comforter. Uh-oh. And we've been taught to prosper well. Oh, sermon after sermon and book after book and podcast after podcast. We've been taught, come on, mm, more, more, daddy, give me some more. We've been taught to prosper well, but we've not been taught to suffer well. It's barely in our theological system. And yet, both, listen to me, saints, are normative components of the Christian walk. Both are normative. Paul wrote to Timothy, endure hardship. As a what? As a soldier. Soldiers don't get surprised when people don't like them. They're called an enemy. And they are intent on doing you mortal harm. Soldiers aren't surprised. Wait a minute, he's shooting at me. 
soldiers aren't surprised at that. But they're there and they've got a face full of mud and their bullets whizzing around. He said, endure hardship like that. And then he also says, endure hardship as a farmer. Farmers work really hard. And then as an athlete, athletes have to train really hard. These are the pictures, the analogies that Paul is writing to Timothy. Endure this like this. And yet we get to moments of struggle and hardship and, and, and we see extremes of both practice and theology and thought. One is that all hardship is consequential. Consequential. Meaning, well, if you'd stop doing that, then you get blessed. So in other words, we can cure all the hardship around our life with enough behavior modification. So if you'll just check, 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 and the doctor will tell you that, do these things. Many times a preacher will tell you, if you'll just work your spiritual disciplines a little harder, check, 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 then all this hardship will go away. Good luck with that. Or everything's the devil. That's a good one. Someone said if the devil didn't exist, the church would have to invent him to have someone to blame. As an early believer, young, dumb college freshman, I had a book on angels by Kenneth Hagin and a six-cassette tape series on demons by Derek Prince. That was my early theology, JC. I was crazy, man. No cross, no blood, no justification by faith, no sanctification. Everything was the devil. I rebuke thee. I loose that bind and loose and rebind. Rebuke that thing. In Jesus' name. I could get my Pentecost on with the best of them. But then you begin to realize it's not all the time the devil. Or here's one. Brother. You just need more faith. More faith. Someone tells me one more time I need more faith. It's going to be on. Like faith is some kind of Holy Ghost gasoline. Faith is a gift from God that is usually dispensed at the moment that you need it. More faith. My God. But no, it says, suffer according to God's will. Well, what in the world does that look like? I know some really fine folk who are doing everything right. They're living right. They're believing. They've got faith. They're reading their Bible every day. They're praying. And yet their life is still riddled with hardship. What does it look like? Turn in the book of Daniel to the book of Daniel. And we're going to go through the book of Daniel. We're going to go through three chapters in three minutes. You thought you were going to have to wait for the movie to come out. No, I'm just going to give you the cliff notes right here. We see in this moment that Jerusalem has been besieged by Babylon. 
King Nebuchadnezzar says, I want you to bring, bring out the most valuable things there. And so they take some of the holy things out of the temple, but then they take the most valuable thing of a nation It's always its next generation. So he says, I want you to find some young folk and listen to the qualifications. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, qualified to serve in the king's palace. I mean, these are the D1 picks. These are the kids going to the Ivies on full rides. These are the best of the best of the best. And they're hauled off. And you know who they are? Daniel. Some other guys that you don't know their names quite as well, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, but you know them better as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these young men were set apart. They were different. Could I just do this for a moment, just a slight bunny trail, and say, this is what the church is supposed to look like. Now, Babylon was obviously a place. It was a kingdom. But we think today that there's, a, there's what we call a Babylonian world system. That is a system of the world. A system of rules and regulations and sin. Those things opposed to God. And yet there was something about these young men that distinguished them. And it says at the end of Daniel 1, at the end of some years of learning, Nebuchadnezzar brought them in, examined them, and found them 10 times better than anything that they could find in Babylon. The church, listen to me, should be 10 times better at everything that it does, that we could be the light that God's called us to be in the midst of this Babylon. And the greatest testimony of the church is not its mission. It's not what we do. The greatest testimony of the church is simply being the church. That doesn't mean we don't do anything. But many times we fail to recognize that the church, being those that are set apart, called out, where the light is reflected from heaven off of that bride. We're the ones that are different, set apart. Then Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a troubling dream. This man's a nut. And all of the astrologers and diviners and the theologians and all, everybody in his political cabinet and system can't, can't help him at all. And he's about to have a narcissistic moment and just kill them all. Someone says, you got one young man that came. It's one of the exiles that came out of Jerusalem. He's really good with this kind of stuff. You ought to call him in. So Daniel comes in. He tells Nebuchadnezzar the dream, interprets the dream for him. And then what happens? All of a sudden now, the favor falls. And we find that at Daniel's request, he made Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon. Favor is yielded from this leader. But then we slide into the third chapter of Daniel and we see how quickly favor can move to fury. And this, this, this narcissistic king had decided, I'm going to build me a little monument to me. 
90 feet tall, nine feet wide. I'm going to hire me a marketing department, going to get me a worship team. And whenever you hear the band crank up, I want you to get on your face and begin to worship this image. Now, what's interesting is what got these men in trouble was demanded worship of a false god. And some folk came and they began to tattle on these young Hebrews. It says, you know, king, and they're not. And these were guys that obviously were, they were a little, they, they were frustrated that they weren't the ones that got to good positions. And so, so they come and they do this. And Nebuchadnezzar begins to inquire of them. Is it something you didn't understand? Did you get the memo on this? I could get you another copy of the memo if you need it. Say, no, 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 we got it. We understand what the edict is. But listen to, listen to the moxie coming out. Nebuchadnezzar, this is, this is these three guys now. We do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. <laughs> now, imagine who they're talking to. Nebuchadnezzar, certified nut, narcissist, building monuments to himself, worship designed to point to him. And they're saying, we ain't going to talk to you about it. Because if we're thrown into your furnace, and this was, this was the consequence. It wasn't incarceration. It was incineration. It's amazing how we can move so quickly from favor to fury to the furnace. Let me just tell you. The God we serve is able to save. But even if he doesn't, we want you to know something. We ain't worshiping your gods. Amen. Or, the worship, or the image of gold you set up. And then things get, well, exciting. And so Nebuchadnezzar says, all right, that's it. Crank that bad boy up seven times hotter than hot. Now, we don't know how hot that is, but probably pretty hot. Enough that the handlers that are ushering these three men to their death, it says they themselves are killed. Now, there are all kinds of accounts to this furnace. Whether they were thrown in, whether they fell in. Can I just, if, you, if you'll let me just have a little bit of imagination for a moment. You know how I think they went in? That's all I got right there. <laughs> Way too light-complected to pull this off, all right? But I don't, think, I don't think they were thrown in. I don't think they stumbled. I think they walked in that bad boy. I think they walked in. And these young men have a moment. And they're walking around. They're talking. I guess this is hot. You know, and they're walking around. They're fellowshipping with one another. And then Nebuchadnezzar looks, and all of a sudden, there are four dudes in there. Hey! I, only... I mean, Nebuchadnezzar's expecting this, this horror show. I mean, they throw these guys in with their clothes. He expected they would immediately, you know, combust. And, and all of a sudden, there would just be this horror as these men screamed as, as they burned to death. And he looks in. 
and he says four guys in there now. He said, oh, okay, one, two, three. Where'd number four come from? He says he looked like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar can't stand it. Hey, come on out of there. And they walk out. Clothes intact. They're not even perspiring. No smell of fire on them. And all of a sudden, Nebuchadnezzar gets a little bit concerned about that fourth dude. He says, uh, 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 anybody that says anything bad about the God uh, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, uh, let him be cut in pieces. And these are men that were righteous. You know, at any given time, we're going to find ourselves in one of three places. And it begs three questions. One, are we trying to avoid the fire? Number two, once in the fire, how do we respond? And third, once out, what's our testimony? You see, the first is trying to avoid that fire. <laughs> I hate to laugh at you, but good luck with that. First Peter, again, chapter 1, talks about all kinds. For now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. How many of you have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials? Okay. We got about four honest people in here. All right. But these have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by what? Fire. May be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Praise, glory, and honor for who? Not for you, for him. Do you realize the way we walk through our fire is how we worship? Not just this. It's how do you walk through your fire? Wow. And we used to have this back in the day, people would come up to the altar. I, I even have heard this in the past week. Fire. Fire. And it's not fire. It's fire. F-I-Y-A-H. That's when you really get your Pentecost on, right? So it's fire, fire, fire. And we were hoping that people were going to give us a courtesy drop. You know, they were going to kind of wiggle a little bit under the power of the Holy Ghost. And, and we used it as a euphemism for revival. You with me? Fire. I don't pray that anymore. I've been through enough fire. I ain't praying it down on nobody. Let me just tell you. All I know is I hear the word fire and I don't want anything to do with it. Even hell talks about as a place where there's an unquenchable what? Fire. Wow. And these men, these were good guys. I don't know of any figure in scripture that we see more fired than Job. There's another book I wish weren't there. God's testimony about the man 
God's testimony. He says, have you considered him? No one on earth like him. Blameless, upright, fears God, shuns evil. And for the next 42 chapters, tears the man down. Family wiped out. Fortunes wiped out. And you look at that and you realize, what was that all about? One simple thing. Job's revelation of who God was was both incomplete and inaccurate. Job's friends, idiots. Job's wife, can't call your wife an idiot, less than, less than wise. Listen to me. You will never truly know God until you've been in the furnace with him. Oh, I wish there were a book I could give you. I wish there were a sermon I could point you to. I wish I could lay hands on you and revelation would flood your spirit and your soul. But let me tell you, you are never going to truly know God until you've been in the fire with him. And you know what? God doesn't just show up in the moment. He's always been there. He's been waiting for you. And you find yourself in these circumstances. It's like, oh God, where are you? Turn around. I've always been here. Ooh. Wow. And we find that fire is not necessarily about consequence and punishment. But it's an ordained process and path in order to know the person of God more perfectly. Isaiah saw God. He said, I'm a dead man. I have seen God. And I'm a man of unpure lips among, among unclean people. Woe to me. And what happened? It says, an angel came and he says, he took what? A coal from the altar and touched his lips. That fire is also a sanctifying fire. Wow. Psalm 66, God, you've tested us and you've refined us like silver. So that fire in our lives, listen to me, saints. It's unavoidable. Sorry to be the one to tell you, but it's unavoidable. Don't try to stay out of it. Number two, once in, what do we do? How do we respond? Well, if you're like I am, my first response is, want to get out of here I want to get out of debt I want my children to stop acting like banshees I want my husband to say a kind word to me Ah! and we find ourselves in this moment and all we want to do is to get out the problem is 
The fire is not always demonic or consequential. Listen to me, saints. You know what the fuel of the fire is? Life. Hate to tell you that. But the fuel of the fire is this thing called life. And there are parts of it that are just absolutely unavoidable. Regardless of how well you try to posture yourself. My dear covenant friend, Duke Bendix, is here this morning with his wife, Kathy. Three years ago, I was headed down the mountain to go to work. Ambulance met me coming up. And what I didn't know is that my dear friend had had a massive cardiac event on his rowing machine. Now, immediately, of course, I created an exercise apologetic real quick at that point. But nevertheless, I met him at the hospital. Follow the ambulance there. Two days later, he has two surgeries across about a 16-hour period of time. Either one should have killed him. And this was a man that had done everything right. He exercised faithfully. He ate well. He read his Bible every day. And still had what was a potentially lethal cardiac event on his exercise machine. Where is the fairness in that? What is that all about? But I can tell you something. He and his wife and his family and his friends, they came out on the other side of that fire somewhat different. Somewhat different. You see, the fire burns away everything so that... Two persons are more fully revealed, ourself and Christ. C.S. Lewis in a light little read called The Problem of Pain. And I quote, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciousness, but shouts in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Another contemporary writer, Vanitha Risner, says this. In suffering, I often see God most clearly, perhaps because I am more desperate to find him. Wow. And you get in that fire, and there's two things you need to find. The first, who's in that fire with you? He didn't feed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in there one at a time. They went together. A band of brothers. Can you imagine the stories they had coming out of that one? Can you imagine folk on the street, they would walk by, be like they had gang tats. There they are. (laughs) They're they're the ones I was telling you about. I think, ooh, they're some bad men right there. But can you imagine the stories that those three men had? Can you imagine the bond that they had in in the midst of that furnace? Who's in your fire? Well, I don't have any friends. I only have six friends on Facebook and I had to pay them. (laughs) If you don't know who your band of brothers is or your yaya sisterhood or whatever you ladies call it. (laughs) I want to encourage you, figure it out quick. 
is probably the folks that are on your favorites list that you'll ring through at 3 o'clock in the morning. They're the folks that you'll answer the phone 24 hours a day when they call. Jesus didn't send the disciples out one by one. He sent them out what? Two by two. This is why we have these things called small groups. I thought it was just another meeting. No! It's where you develop a band of brothers. It's where you develop those men and women that you're going to walk with, that are going to be in the fire with you. But beyond who else is in there, the fourth man's in there. And I got to tell you, this is the first question pastorally I ask now when someone comes to me and they and they go ah saying are you finding God right now what is God trying to say to you through the pain the tears the grief the discomfort the inconvenience what is he what is he what is he communicating to you in this particular moment wow and then You want to stay in there until you're fully cooked. Bob Mumford was a great communicator in the body of Christ. He had this great sermon years ago called, Are You Done Yet? My mom, great cook, and I was a chunky child, so I watched the oven pretty carefully. You could smell it. She'd be baking a cake or something, and she'd open the door, and she'd pull it out for a moment, and I'd be like, and she would take a toothpick, stick it in, pull it out to see if anything was still sticking to it. And if it wasn't done, you know what she'd do? She'd shove it back in the oven. Guess what? There are a lot of half-baked Christians around because they jumped out of their furnace too quickly. And they're not fully cooked. They're half-baked. First Peter talks about we're being built into a spiritual house like living stones. The best vernacular that we have or the picture we have today are bricks. Well, guess what? Bricks are fired. And you take a brick that's not fully cooked, you begin to put weight on it on top or beside, and that brick just says, poof, and it just kind of disintegrates. Some of you wonder, why isn't God able to build with me? Maybe you weren't fully cooked. And let me just tell you, you can try to jump out of that fire, but God will be real faithful to do what? Shove you back in, baby. You go to a restaurant today and it says right on the menu, raw, consuming raw or uncooked foods might be dangerous. Some of us are dangerous because we're undercooked and we're still raw. But then lastly, once out, what's our testimony? What's our testimony? Paul wrote in Acts, I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Are we preaching a gospel that says once you've raised your hand 
and put it back down real fast, it's all good. Could I say to you, that's not the whole counsel of God. Let me tell you, if you preach cheap discipleship, you're going to get cheap disciples. Hear me. I was reading an account of a man and this, this young seeker came to him and says, talk to me about following this Jesus. He said, have a seat. And he laid it out. Going to cost you everything. Everything. Going to be the hardest thing you've ever done. You're going to have to die to self. And he, he, he laid it out. I mean, just, I mean, in technical, in, in just de, all the six-point type details that you and I figured out sometime later. You mean, it's a, oh, yeah. He gave it to him on the front end. And I'd love to tell you that the guy said, sign me up. He said, I'm not ready to make that commitment. But I thought, good. At least you heard the whole gospel. At least you heard the whole counsel of God and you were able to make an informed decision of what being a disciple really is. It's not going to cost you a little bit. It's not going to cost you 10%. It's not going to cost your stint in the nursery for three months. It's going to cost you everything before it's all said and done. Because whatever it is you're holding behind your back, that's the very thing God's saying, I want that too. And what's your testimony? Is don't do it. No. Our testimony coming out, I met with God. I saw an aspect of who he was I've never seen before. And every one of you have been through some kind of pain or trial or grief or loss. And Jesus came and met you in a way that was like, And all of a sudden, you don't remember the loss. All you remember is the presence. It's like, whatever this is, is completely worth it. It's completely worth it for having him. Amen? What is our testimony? Somebody got it. But the revealed and realized will, listen to me, saints, is not always happy and overtly blessing-filled. I'll close with this last story. It's a young couple in our Chantilly congregation, Stephen and Elise Law. I don't know if you know the laws. He is our young adult pastor. Some years ago, she was pregnant. I think it was her first Second, the doctors were looking at all the pictures that doctors look at and they said, something's not, something's really not good here. Your child is, I I think it was hydrocephalus, but your child's head cavity is this and your child's brain is this. And if she survives birth, she's going to be terribly challenged. And I watched this young man, this young woman. And, of course, the doctors at that point were, you know, with worldly Babylonian thinking, were thinking, surely you want to just discard this one and just try again for a better outcome. But they stood. 
They prayed. They believed. They found their band of brothers and their Yahya sisterhood in their furnace in that particular moment of what was happening in this woman's womb. And they delivered Willow. And today doctors use the fact that all of a sudden her brain, which was this big, is now almost filled her entire cavity in her skull. And we love the testimony, but let me just tell you, there's always a test before the testimony. And I watched this couple. I watched the strength. And you listen to Stephen Law stand at this desk and preach today. And you hear weight. You hear a gravitas of a man that's been in the furnace and come out on the other side. He's tempered. He's mature. He's humbled. People read Hebrews 11 and they look at their list. Stephen Law is on my list. Because I watched how he walked through the fire. Where are you today? Where are you? Avoiding the fire? Let me know how that works out for you. Because you see, we get there and then many times there's the question, why? Could I submit to you that's always the wrong question? Because why always tends to take us to an accusation towards God? It's the first lie. It's the lie that goes all the way back to the very first one. If he were really a good God, you could have this too. So God certainly, why me? Oh God, you ever heard that? God, why me? A father who didn't spare his own son is going to cut you a deal. Really? Huh. Let the theological weight on that fall. Are you in the fire? Look around. Find the men and women that God has placed you with to be in that moment. But most importantly, find God in that furnace. He's been there the whole time waiting for you. And your testimony, God met me. smell of fire pray with me Lord help us hear something today Lord we've heard Daniel 3 preached and taught and every which way but loose but God today I'm praying by your spirit that you would bring not just clarity and understanding to the difficult moments maybe we've experienced or are experiencing. But that God, you would make yourself known to us. Understanding that you use anything and everything to reveal your glory. So Lord, we want to know you. Really know you. Even Moses, who had the presence of God in the delivery of the promise, even he said, God, I want to know you better. Now show me your glory. God, let that be our heart cry. Not to avoid the furnace. Not to try to get out prematurely. But God, let that furnace work its completed work in our life. But let us know you better. 
God's people said in agreement. Amen. Bless you, church.